Welcome to the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Now, here's your host, editor Christian Berg. All right, welcome back to the Bow Hunting Podcast. We are presented by Lancaster Archery Supply. For all your bow hunting needs, visit LancasterArchery.com. We've got the gear, we've got the knowledge, and we've got the passion. Mr. Bill Winky, field editor extraordinaire, you are our guest for this week, and you now know where to get everything you need for the upcoming season. I know now, yeah. I was, I was going to try buying it off Amazon or going down to the corner drugstore, but now I know. Now you know, you got to go to Lancaster Archery. It's the only game in town. And uh, no, they are good folks down there. And it's always a pleasure to have you on the show as we sit here in the middle of July, a couple months out from opening day, depending on where you live, maybe two, maybe three, depending on the state. But uh, these are kind of the the dog days that we're getting into, if you will. It's hot and humid here on the East Coast. I imagine it's similar in Iowa. Well, it has been. We're just getting rain today, which is much needed. So it's uh, we're getting a little break. Well, that's good. Um, you know, Bill, I was thinking about how I wanted to start the show because I think we're going to be a little shotgun with this one, whatever sort of comes to your mind and mine. But, you know, they always say that the second act in life is never as good as the first. Right. And I'm like, well, I don't think these folks know Bill Winky because I don't know if you're on like your third act or your fourth act now, but you have sort of reinvented yourself a couple of times in recent years because, you know, for most of my time, which is 15 years here as the editor, probably 12 or 13 of that, you were pretty settled in at your previous farm in Southern Iowa. And of course, you had you had a lot of formative years before that. But that was before I really knew you when you were a young man, just sort of carving your niche in the world. And then you had that form. You sold that form. You moved from southern Iowa to northern Iowa. You leased for a year. You killed a really great buck. Two years. Okay, so you leased for two years. And I know you killed at least one really good buck by sleeping in a a sleeping bag on the ground up on the ridge on your lease. So that was really interesting. And now I haven't even talked to you about this, but I saw you made a reference in one of your recent columns. Looks like you you bought a farm again. So now maybe you've got another farm in a completely different area than where you, you know, previously did. Yeah. So the, you know, one of the goals when uh, we moved was to spend more time with our parents. You know, my wife and, and her mom, unfortunately, passed away just, you know, a few weeks ago. But at least she was able to spend a lot of time with her, you know, toward the end. And both of my parents are still alive and and uh, living in the area where I grew up. So uh, the best excuse for me to spend time anywhere is if I own land there. Uh, so then, you know, you, you don't have to say, oh, well, I should probably go see mom and dad. Well, you're going to you're you got projects to do. You're going to be there, you know. So I bought something that wasn't too far away from where they live, in an area that I'd hunted when I was a kid. So it's pretty cool from that standpoint. Not too far from that lease, just about maybe four miles as the crow flies, four or five. Um, so that's that was kind of the motivation. I, I love this bluff country to begin with, 
But getting closer to mom and dad was one of the big benefits of doing that. So now, I mean, I was up there yesterday and saw him. I'm at the farm right now doing some work. But uh, I probably spend three or four days a week here. And I remember my dad told me uh, about a year ago, he said, I've seen you more in the last two years than in the 10 years before that combined. And and I guess he meant it to be a compliment, but I kind of felt bad about that. But uh, th- this uh, change should fix that. Well, I mean, you you touch on something important. And of course, I want to talk more about your farm. But I think there's a life lesson in what you said, because it doesn't really matter if you're into hunting or golfing or, you know, whatever. If you if you buy a property and invest, you know, yourself wherever you want to be, that's where you're going to spend time. So you did it for family reasons. But, you know, maybe somebody really loves the beach. Well, if you want to spend more time at the beach buy a beach house, right? If you want to spend more time in the mountains, go buy some property in the mountains because then you touched on it. You're going to have a quote excuse or maybe reason is a better word, but you're going to be where you're, where you need to be. And for you, the fact that your folks are there, that really makes it a lot easier to be a good son, doesn't it? Well, yeah, I need, I need all the help I can get to be a good son. <laughs> yeah, but there's there's selfish motivation too. I mean, I do love this country. You know, I I grew up hunting this, and it just brings back good memories. So um, it wasn't a hard, you know, a hard transition for me to make. The hunting isn't as good, you know, by a long shot as the uh, property I owned before, but it's still fun. You know, it's still uh, you know whitetail bow hunting, and uh, it just you know you get the warm fuzzies. You know, being in a place that brings back a lot of memories. So did you literally hunt this property when you were a kid or would you say it was just close? Just this, this neighborhood in general, uh, not specifically this farm. Um, but you know, even the lease, like I said, was just four or five miles away and I hunted all of that, uh, you know, back in the day. So I duck hunted really close to here. We're really, we're almost on the Mississippi river. We're in the bluffs that overlook the Mississippi. So you can actually stand on the bluffs and you can see the spot where I grew up duck hunting, you know, clear out mm. in the bottom. So, you know, when I was a kid, there weren't really any deer. You know, there weren't really a huntable number until probably the mid 80s at the earliest. I mean, you could hunt a whole season and not see a deer. Um, when I went off to college, I'd bow hunted for a few years prior to that. But when I went off to college, I only knew one guy of all the people that I knew that had ever killed a deer with a bow and uh he was a local legend because even in iowa in what's known as you know the the deer you know factory if you want to call it that this part of the state um nobody bow hunted because they just weren't deer so we grew up duck hunting uh pheasant hunting rough grouse hunting we we grouse hunted all this country all these bluffs um so that's that's kind of the the memories a little bit more than the deer, but um, we did move back here again in the early '90s, and by then there were you know a real huntable number. Um, and then shortly after that, we moved down to southern Iowa. Land was just so much cheaper down there. I mean, you could buy. We could get sidetracked talking about land, but if I'd only known then what I know now, they were almost giving it away. Um, you could buy land down there for the, the price of a couple of trees. You know, so 
you, you could buy like you know, under a thousand dollars an acre, like a hundred, two hundred. What? Yeah. So <laughs> one or two walnut trees per acre, and and you paid for the farm. Um, I just didn't know anything when I first started buying down there. It was three hundred an acre, and people were telling me that not too long before that it had been you know some of the timber ground was as low as a hundred an acre, and nobody wanted it. Um, because that was coming off the farm crisis. You know, the late 80s was really bad in Iowa and the farmers just got beat up bad. So if you couldn't, you know, raise corn on it or feed cows on it, they didn't want it. I mean, they practically gave it away. Um, so that was Southern Iowa. And, and that's what really lured me down there, us, was you could get a, a start. Um, and then, you know, you know what's happened since then, but still that was... Uh, Anyway, we got we got off topic, but it was you can get into land ownership when it's cheap. It's a lot tougher now. I mean, it's kind of risky and scary and you got to take a deep dive um, now. But back then, what's the risk? I mean, you buy a farm and you sell a tree per acre. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. It sounds fantastic. Well, you mentioned something else that I thought was interesting. And again, you're right. We're going from rabbit trail to rabbit trail because I want to talk more about your form. But I got to ask you, is that guy who was the only guy you knew in your area there who had killed a deer with his bow? Yeah. Is he still alive? Is he still around? Oh, yeah. Tom Weiner. Yeah. Yeah. He killed so, a six when I was in high school. And uh, he, he was on the front page of the newspaper. Uh, with a six pointer that he killed with his bow. And, and, uh, uh, Tom was a real woodsman, real outdoorsman, still is, you know, he doesn't have quite the passion for killing the deer. You know, a lot of people, you know, as they get older, they, they have more, you know, fun helping family members or friends. You know, he's invited me a bunch of times to hunt on his farm, but I never take him up on it because, you know, I don't want to take advantage of that. I've got my own places, but, you know, that's kind of, you know, Tom was that guy and, and, uh, I spent a lot of time, you know, hunting with him when I was a boy. He was several years older than me, but we had enough in common. Uh, but anyway, he was the only guy I knew. And even after I graduated from college, you know, and was thinking, man, I, I want to, you know, shoot some deer. I still didn't know anybody. So, you know, bow hunting, Peterson's bow hunting didn't exist yet then, uh, but bow hunter magazine did. So I would, I don't know if you remember those white, they came in like a white, uh, not an envelope, but what do they call it? Where like the cover is like a false cover. Oh yeah, sure. They, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it was really cool. When that thing came in the mail, I was like, Oh, this is so awesome. You know, I get to learn something about bow hunting today, you know, and I'd read every single word on every page, every single advertisement, every, even like who the editorial staff was, you know, who was the, you know, publisher of the magazine. I mean, I had everything in every episode, every <laughs> issue memorized because there was nothing. You know, nobody knew anything. Um, there was no internet. There was no hunting TV and, and very few books. I mean, Chuck Adams was just getting going. You know, M.R. James was kind of the man. You know, Dwight Shue, you know, was also, you know, a, a heavy instructor of the day. And the little by little, of course, Peterson's bow hunting, you know, came on the scene, you know, over time too. But, um, yeah, that those early days, there was uh, it took so long to learn anything, and you know people are proud of. They say, "Oh man, I can," you know, you know the kids now, uh, they know so much more 
in the first couple of years of bow hunting than we learned in the first eight or 10. Yeah, you can learn, you can learn a lot of the basic principles really quickly. And, and yeah. every, every time you have, you know, anything, I mean, just go back to your, I mean, like you just bought that form and every time you need to fix something on your form, if you don't know how to do it, you just grab your phone and search on YouTube. And there's probably somebody with a video showing you exactly what you need to do. Well, yeah. And like how many pounds per acre of a certain fertilizer do I need for, you know, turnips? You know, it's a, you don't have to, you don't have to know anything. Mr. Google knows everything. You just have to know how to take it. <laughs> oh, maybe we could get, you know, maybe in a few years, everyone will be millionaires because AI will be managing everyone's portfolio, you know? <laughs> well, <laughs> I my land. That's my whole portfolio. Well, so, so how many acres? I know you had about a thousand at your old place. How many acres yeah. do you have now? Uh, we've got 625 and it's, some of it I owned with my sister and her husband, my wife and I, and, and uh, Beth and, and her husband. Um, but uh, so know, that's almost that's almost a square mile, Bill. It's yeah, almost a section. The, the beauty of, of rough ground, you know, without going too far off topic, but you know, when you're buying an acre of land, you're buying the projection of the boundary onto a horizontal plane. So if, if there's a lot of up and down, the amount of surface area, actual surface area that you're getting for an acre is a lot higher. So if you take, you know, like an acre of this country and pound it flat, it might be, you know, 1.7 acres or whatever. Um, so if you're, if you're buying hill country, you're buying more surface area per acre. So even that square mile is probably well over a thousand acres if you pounded it flat. I mean, it just seems like you're going forever until you get to the other end of it. That was a very sort of scientific way of a two or a three word term that I use to say the same thing, which is this. It hunts big. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it reminds me the way you describe it of the place that I hunt in Illinois, uh, River Bottom Bucks. And that outfitter's only got a couple hundred acres there at his place. But we always say that it hunts so big because it has all these rises and falls and there's the river bottom and then there's a bunch of ditches that go down to it. And so you have all these ridges and valleys and these little pinch points and then he puts food plots in. And like you say, you take a, a, a you know, a side by side ride around the property and it feels like it's 400 acres, you know? Yeah. No, and that's that's the, you know, it's not the secret, but it's just something that, you know, when you're around land enough, you know, you, you kind of realize that there are some advantages to owning stuff that's got more slope to it. Yeah, and now the the downside of that, of course, is as you get to be old, like we're getting, it's not as easy to walk up and down those hills anymore. No, that's what they make those side by sides for. <laughs> who, cares, who cares if you spook the deer better yet just sleep out there don't even walk up and down just don't you know only you go up bill goes up the hill once a week you know he yeah. sleeps up there because he doesn't want to come down well i mean you own the place now so theoretically i mean you could build yourself a whole network of little elevated huts out there with cots and everything well the the thought that i had 
and you're going to laugh at this. I haven't done it yet. But they make those underground water tanks, and uh, some of those are just the perfect size. They've got a little hatch, you know, that you screw off. It's like, I don't know, 30 inches or 24 inches across. You know, you could bury those things and just have the hatch sticking up at ground level. And at the end of legal shooting time, you just climb down, take the hatch off, go, in, go down into your little bunker. Um, you know, that, you know, you, you wouldn't make like this visual scar to your hunting area because you wouldn't have to look at that thing, you know, all day long. Because who wants to sit in a tree stand and have to look at some nasty old shack that you built, you know, for a couple hundred bucks. So mm-hmm. if you could bury, you know, bury a bunch of these water tanks all over the place. Maybe you could get the wreckage of uh, what was that sub that <laughs> got crushed down there at the Titanic? <laughs> Is it wrong of me to laugh at that? I I think those people were nuts. Like anyone who would pay money to go down there is, is, yeah, be better off taking that money and buying whitetail ground. I tell you that. But almost, you can say that about almost anything. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm too claustrophobic to go into an underground water tank to sleep, Bill. Well, yeah, you wouldn't notice that. It's like climbing into a tent, Um, you know, and the, and you could use tents, but the deer will see the tent and, you know, they, they will, they won't appreciate that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, I mean, you're onto something though. There's, there's some kind of, uh, opportunity, you know, in, in this. And, uh, Redneck makes these hunting cabins now, and I'm going to put one of those out. I've got one here and it's just a little hut. It's a fiberglass building. It's basically, it looks like a, you know, like a yard shed or garden shed. It's got a couple of windows. Um, I was thinking about putting one of those in a spot that would be really cool, like for summer getaways, and then have it be a location too that I could sleep in during the season without having to come back through the whole farm uh, and spook everything. So uh, I haven't figured out where to put it yet. It's still sitting next to the pole building, but that's that's another option. The only downside with that is that you have to look at it, you know, when you're sitting there. Well, I mean, how about this? I mean, if money's no object. How well, if it is an object. Oh, well, I mean, I, I'm, when I'm talking to you, Bill, I mean, I'm poor. I always think when I'm talking to you, I've got a high roller. What about this? I mean, it, this is a good idea. Just come on, humor me. Oh, Ski- right. I'll pretend I'll pretend like it's no object. Ski lifts. They're quiet. Electric yeah. motors. You just have a chair that you get in and it carries right here from the bottom of the bluff right up to the top. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. I'll go ahead and put one of those in. That won't be any problem. <laughs> <laughs> it would really work, though. When you're, when you're on that topic, um, a friend of mine, and I've met this fellow. He's the friend of a friend. I'm not going to say his name. I mean, you know, he, he's pretty wealthy. But anyway, he owned land, I think, is in South Dakota. And he he built a uh, underground tunnel. He used uh, plastic pipe you know like the non-corrugated yeah, like a big conduit yeah it's like four foot diameter or something like that but he made one pass it was flat land he made one pass across the whole farm uh underground and then so he could get in there and he could go from you know wherever he parked or wherever his building was you know at a whatever angle across the property he could pop out you know wherever he wanted to to access different spots um so that was he could afford to just bury that gigantic plastic pipe all the way across his farm. 
Can you imagine antelope hunting rifle season with a network of tunnels like that? You just literally spot the biggest pronghorn on the prairie and you say, we're just going to go down into the labyrinth and gopher hole right over there. We're going to pop up 75 yards away and blast them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Somewhere the, the fair chase might get lost in all of that. Oh, well, you know. I don't like the idea of being able to sneak to your tree stand that way. Well, in all seriousness, you know what I used to dream about here in Pennsylvania? Because it's hilly here, too. So you're almost always going yeah. uphill or downhill. That's right. I, I always thought a series of zip lines to get to tree yeah. stands would be good because if you could start on the top of a hill somewhere and you had a tree stand, as long as you were losing elevation between where you start, you could, you know, in the mornings when it was dark, you know, and like you said, you don't want to go through there and and educate deer or bust deer. Yeah, just two or three zip lines and you're right in your tree, man. Yeah, no, I think it's, no, I've thought of that one too. Um, it's a lot more practical than tunneling. <laughs> well, it's cheaper. I mean, you can just afford the cable and you want to install it, you could do it. Yeah, yeah we've built them before. I don't know how, how good I'd feel about, maybe you'd have to check it pretty often because you'd have to be, <clears throat> you know, 20 plus feet up you're not going to zip along, you know, six feet off the ground. So that means that, you know, you're zipping along in the dark, you know, let's say you're going 10 miles an hour. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I think, what about this though? And this is, this actually, I hope people are entertained. I know we're entertained. People yeah, may think, think much this, for us. this is either the greatest or most inane uh, episode we've ever done, but think about this. Now we're really getting crazy, but, an outfitter out there somewhere should do adventure deer hunting and every hunt is a zip line and deer set. So like each day you do a different course and you can sit a new stand and it's a, it's a zip line course and you go and you spend a certain amount of time in the stand. And if nothing comes by, you zip to the next spot. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the business you need. To yeah. <laughs> I need. I need I'll to come, quit. I'm quitting my job. You. I'll come and hunt with you once you get that done. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you know where it would work well, and it's not even hunting really, but inside of a high fence place. Oh yeah, that would work great because you could actually do it then because you'd have enough controlled environment where animals almost have to walk in front of people so you could do it you could zip line people around and let them shoot stuff uh all in the same day so you said it's either a great podcast or an inane one yeah <laughs> i'm getting i'm getting ready to cast my vote <laughs> oh bill you never pass up an opportunity to zing me so all right let's try to redeem let's try to redeem it okay because okay. that's the, the beauty of life is that none of us are ever beyond redemption until yeah. we breathe our last right there's still hope for us there is and there's still hope for this episode so you've got this 630 <laughs> acres or so and you said it's rough ground so i'm assuming it's like you said it's hilly so there's not is there a ton of open ground on the property there's not much anymore i'm working on that that's kind of like even what i'm doing uh, up here today and uh, my biggest priority now is the habitat because it was uh pasture land the whole thing um i guess one little there's three different farms there one of them, 125 acres, wasn't pastured, but all the rest of it was. So anything that 
uh, we couldn't crop, you know, and, and uh, taking the cattle off it. We have to figure out how to put, or I have to figure out, you know, how to put uh, habitat on there. And, you know, there's a lot of government programs that are out there geared specifically for that. So you don't have to put out a lot of money. You just have to, you know, get, get in line with the forest or come up with a plan. Uh, the USDA has allocations for this kind of stuff that, you know, the, the money's already in the bucket. You know, you're not taking taxpayers' money. It's already been taken. You know, somebody is going to, somebody's going to use it. Um, so I tap into a lot of that and, and that, you know, habitat creation for me involves either, you know, re- removing some of the canopy to create thicker habitat at ground level or to your point in those open areas that are too steep to farm, but don't have what I would call permanent habitat. Uh, I'm going in there and, and creating permanent habitat and it's a lot of work. Uh, there's probably 60 acres like that 50 acres on this farm that fall into that category um, surprisingly this place has a massive massive number of wild apple trees so as soon as you take the cows out there's just apple trees everywhere because the cows were eating them so that's kind of cool so i can kind of back off and, and just see you know how far those things go before i get too carried away because maybe you know a bunch of this stuff will just fill in with apple trees and, and you get the best of all worlds then so how long has that pasture land been let go now? Like it, you have mature trees on there or just a whole bunch of scrubby areas? Well, there's both. Um, so the, some of it, this is the second year uh, for some of it being you know, out of pasture and the first year for some of it. We haven't owned it for that long. And the cows came off when I, when I bought them. Um, so there hasn't been a lot of time for the, you know, the habitat to recover on its own. And that's, you know, the, you know, you got to see what nature wants to do, but you also want to, you know, nudge nature in the right direction with some of the programs that you get involved in. But I just wanted to bring up the point that it was surprising. Nobody would really think of the native habitat being apple trees. Um, so that's kind of cool. There's probably, I'd say there's a thousand apple trees, hmm. you know, ranging anywhere from three feet tall to 30 feet tall uh, on this place. So. <laughs> So you've obviously got a lot of work to do. Were these properties before you got them uh, hunted? I mean, everything pretty much gets hunted, but nothing, I wouldn't say super serious. You know, it's not like you're taking down tree stands. Um, the the big thing in this part of Iowa is drive hunting. You know, there's a, a real strong historical tradition of, uh, you know, large group, you know, drive hunting. And I did that when I was a kid. You know, the, the days to, are coming to an end of that, you know, and everybody understands that. Um, but that this was kind of one of those areas that, that did get some of that. Um, you know, a little bit of bow hunting, not much, you know. So, you know, it was just randomly hunted and not managed, put it that way. And is there a good uh, access to it all? You have trails and such or? Yeah, I mean, I can get around on it pretty good. You know, it's, so he- it's the challenge. Like you said, you know, the best hunting is usually on the ridges because the wind is more predictable. You know, the deer are usually up there most of the day. You know, they'll come down into the bottoms to feed in the evenings, you know, if there's food plots down there or farm fields. But you got to figure out how, how can you get to and from those ridges, you know, without messing stuff up. Um, so that's the biggest access issue is just how to get to and from the best hunting spots. Um, there's plenty of trails to get all over the property. There's, you know, it's actually kind of fun. You know, I, 
I was out this morning for a four wheeler ride just because it's fun, you know, just putt putting along and, you know, you, you, it's enjoyable to cruise up and down through those bluffs. <clears throat> well, I'll tell you what's nice <clears throat> is having, uh, having your own place there to do that and you don't have to trailer your machine. You yeah. know, because like I always have to put mine on a, my trailer because, you know, I got to drag it around to different farms in the area where I hunt. It's nice for you to just have a garage or a barn or something. You can just walk out in the morning and get right on your machine and go. Yeah, because what you're looking at behind me, uh, we built this. I wish I could say we as in I was part of it, but we as in I was like the guy who wrote the check. We, um, I'm, I'm in a living quarters inside of a pool building. So we built a uh, 12 foot by 36 foot and uh, it's like a little hunting cabin. You know, it's got everything you need. Uh, I mean, I could live here. It'd be a little bit depressing because there's no windows. You're just inside of a pool building, but you know, it's, it's got everything that you need. So when I'm at the farm, this is where I'm at and I've got everything, you know, in the pool building right out the door, you know, do all the work I need to do, you know, the equipment's here. And then, you know, when it's time to leave, I just pack up a few things and go back you know, to where we live. So, you're right. It is really convenient. Uh, the only thing that'd be better is if you lived on the property. And, and uh, of course, that's what we did on the farm before. So I could get a lot more work done because, you know, let's say I had a couple of hours, you know, one evening, I could go out and do something. Whereas here, you know, you'd have to make a special trip. Well, how far is it from home to the farm? Two, two hours and 45 minutes. Oh, wow. So this is not this is not close to your parents or it is? No, you my, live, my parents you are live, here. Oh, they we, are? Yes. We live like halfway between where we lived before in Southern Iowa and up here in the northern part of the state. So we're like in the Iowa City area. Um, and this is all the way north before we were all the way south. So, gotcha. you, know, it, you know, in the ideal world, you know, you got to live someplace, you know, and, and uh, you know, my wife liked that area. And uh, so that was a little bit of a, you know, a compromise with driving distance to the hunting property. Yeah. I mean, families like a little bit more civilization than we do sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's sometimes having some separation is healthy too. You know, I mean, um, it's nice to be able to pull away and say, well, I, I don't have to worry about that today because it's too far to drive. You know, where if you're right there by the farm, you probably would spend every waking moment, you know, doing something. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you've got this property and obviously I'm enthusiastic about this because I know it's going to lead to some good content for Peterson's bow hunting, but you also have your own projects going. And one of the things that you've been doing for a couple of years now is a whole video series with your daughter, right? And yeah. I'm, I'm assuming this is going to be ongoing uh, as you start to, you know, hunt this new farm and everything, will this be your first season here this fall? Second season. Um, okay. we started, I think I started the series in August last year. Um, and then Jordan, our daughter came on in, in September sometime last year. So this will be her second season of bow hunting and, uh, our second season of hunting this farm. And she killed a buck last year, right? Yeah, she did. It was, uh, you know, and, and I wrote about that in the uh, Boning 101 or the Boning Wisdom, whatever that, what do we call it? 
Oh my gosh, you don't even know the name of your own column? <laughs> I, I, ought let, I ought to let this guy go. You know what I mean? <laughs> Come on. Yeah, it was bull hunting wisdom. You wrote about her her buck and yeah. how it was kind of exciting reliving the uh, experience of a newbie bow hunter, right? Yeah, and, and really the challenges of of uh, that the those people face, you know, figuring out how to get into our sport. You know, we assume so much because you know we've done it for so long, and you know it's almost second nature now. We don't have to think twice about you know how to set up a bow or which arrow to choose or you know where to hang your tree stand. But when you go back to square one, you don't know any of that stuff. Uh, it's pretty intimidating, this this sport, uh, if you want to call it a sport, but this quest or this passion or this activity. Uh, I asked her, you know, what would you do if I wouldn't have been here to teach you or help you? She said, there's no way I could have done this. Um, you know, so she wouldn't have been a bow hunter. Now, it's very few people just roll out of bed in the morning. And to say, I think I'll become a bow hunter today, you know, with with no exposure to the sport whatsoever from friends or family, you know. Are you are you recording this, uh, Christian? Yeah. So go ahead and make your confession, whatever you want to tell everyone. No, my my confession. This is something you can edit out. I've got to go to the bathroom. All right. Back. Man, you look really refreshed. But it's a problem with coffee. You know, I'll drink coffee almost all morning. And uh, that's uh, they call it a diuretic. They, they, you know what they say about coffee? You don't buy it; you only rent it. Yeah, <laughs> for about forty-five minutes. <laughs> now, so this is interesting because I was thinking as you were uh, indisposed, Bill Winky kind of really built a career on high-level deer hunting stuff and killing really big bucks. I mean, back when you lived at your old farm, I would say that it was typical for you in a given year to have more than one buck in like the 160 to 180 class that you'd potentially be hunting. And in a few years, you had bucks that either crept up to or even surpassed 200 inches. So... That's kind of what was your bread and butter for a lot of years. But of course, with your daughter now, like that buck that she killed last year was just the first buck like any one of us would have killed back when we were kids, you know, and that's and it's tremendous. Um, but I'm curious, like, what's your focus with this project now? Are you doing something that's more geared towards like more novice bow hunters? And do you find like with the medium that you're using, like I think you're probably doing YouTube, but tell me if I'm wrong. Like yeah. what's the audience there and what are you finding is the sweet spot for what you guys are doing? Well, my my niche for better or for worse is still the hardcore bow hunter. Um, you know, and, and it'd be nice if little by little we can transition that, you know, to pick up the the younger person because you can pull up all the demographics in the analytics portion of YouTube and you can see the age of the viewers and um, my whole audience is skewed toward the upper end. Um, so, you know, you, you, you need to balance everything. You know, you can't have it be, oh, we're only hunting, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, managed private land or we're only hunting, you know, deer of a certain age. You know, you, you always want to have something that you can teach or relate to any level 
of viewer. And we do that, of course, with the magazine too. We try to relate to readers of various levels. So when you get into a topic, you try to start, you know, basic and simple and then just keep getting deeper so that the person that already knows a fair amount about it, by the time you get done working through that topic, they pick up maybe one or two things, but you didn't blow away the, the person who doesn't know anything about it. So it's a tough balance to strike, but, uh, my demographic is definitely older and, uh, you know, if, for that reason, I don't maybe have the massive number of, of views that you'd get if you appealed to the masses, let's say, um, you know, because there's a lot of younger people that are really big onto the digital media and the people that are closer to my age, you know, they're a little bit less, you know, there's not as many of them that are watching three or four YouTube programs every day as, as some of the young people. Um, well. Let me interject here, Bill, that the number of views that a given piece of content has may or may not have any correlation to the value of said content, because one thing that I always find depressing about YouTube, and I'm sure you do too, if you want to see what videos have like some of the highest views, it's literally these girls who do nothing but do bikini try-ons. And so it's just the same girl trying on 20 different bikinis and it's like a 10 minute video and it'll have 37 million views. And I'm like, well, there's no redeeming value there, but men are pigs and it's the least common denominator. And if her goal is to get eyeballs so she can make revenue off of views, well, she got them, but she didn't teach anything to anybody today. Well, and you just have to stay true to your mission, um, you know, come what may and and not and not succumb to, I'm not saying, you know, we're not obviously going to do anything like that, but you can become like personality driven or try to be, you know, where you're more quote unquote entertaining, or you can have, you know, co-hosts that are fun or whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, I feel like, <clears throat> you know, we have to help people, you know, and, and if we're helping them, whether it's through the magazine you know, which we've done for a long, long time or through these videos, you know, which I've done for quite a while too. But I feel like you'll get rewarded for that in the end because people are going to be loyal to you if you're helping them. Um, so maybe, maybe you're not getting as many views as some of the more entertaining content out there, but hopefully um, you're still doing something good for the sport and still helping people. Oh, absolutely. It's hard to turn on a personality. Either you've got it or you don't, you know, but that doesn't mean you can't help people and teach, you know, so that's kind of what I focus on. Well, and you've always been, I mean, I think if, if somebody asked me, like, what is your, what is the core of all your whitetail related content? It's fundamentals. You, you essentially build, you know, you may go, you know, like that. Again, I come back to sleeping on the ridge to kill the buck. Well, that was kind of an offbeat tactic or whatever, but it really was directly tied to the fundamental of yeah. not educating deer. Yeah. If they, I mean, you stick with the basics. If they don't know that you're hunting them, they're going to move more naturally and they're a lot easier to kill. So what, what are the ways that you can keep them from knowing that you're hunting them? Sometimes you just go to extremes in that regard, but um, yeah, I think. It's all fundamentals, and I think we do a disservice to the to the reader or the viewer if we try to trump up some sensationalized, gimmicky method of doing things. Um, I know that it it gets people excited for the short term, but it doesn't help you know anybody long term. 
you know, maybe I'm just not paying as close of attention as I used to, but I actually think that the gimmick phase in our sport is kind of over. Not that there might not be some, but didn't it seem like in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was just gimmick after gimmick. And I, I don't see as much crap anymore. I think that the internet has done away with that stuff because you get reviews now, you know, instantaneously, 20 people weigh in and say, this doesn't work, where, you know, you saw an ad in a magazine and you're like, gosh, I wonder if that works. You don't have any way of finding out whether it does or doesn't unless you actually buy one and try it, you know. Um, so I, I do think that the amount of information out there has kind of weeded out some of that goofy stuff. Um, but it's good. I'm glad, you know, because some of that, not only the products, but even some of the methods that people would talk about were, were pretty offbeat. Um, and, and uh, you know, anything to kind of get somebody's attention. But now I think people are so much savvier that all, all you do is turn them away if you get too stupid. Somewhere there is an entire shipping container full of the bottle cap acorn cruncher calls yes. that hunter <laughs> specialties tried to take used soda bottle caps and perforate them and convince us that we could push them together and pull them apart to create simulate the sound of deer contentedly feeding on acorns in the woods they had, they had something you could hang from your tree stand at a ground level that Oh, so you could gr grunt at ground level. So it was more realistic. Or do something. There was other stuff. Because the one was the acorn cruncher, I think. Then there was a couple others. And, and uh, oh, yeah, some of the set products um, over the years have been pretty hard to swallow. Um, You're not supposed to drink them, Bill. They're for external well, use only. And even some of the, the products that went on bows. You know that, but you know it's fun. It's fun. It was fun back then to uh, to see all the stuff that came out. You know now maybe some of the excitement is gone because there's not a whole bunch of crazy stuff to look at. You know when you go to the ATA show, it used to be booth after booth after booth that were like six foot wide with people selling one product, and it was a uh, you know something in the shape of a leaf that smelled like whatever. You know, it's like I'll tell you one. This was that. just. There was one just a few years ago, and the poor guy, he was such a believer in it. Did you ever see the guy who was trying to sell basically like this dummy that you put in your tree stands yeah. when you weren't there? So that yes. deer would get used to thinking there was somebody there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I, he, he wanted me he wanted me to shoot a bunch of photos and help him like get the thing. Hunt, hunter's, hunter's buddy or hunting buddy or something like that. But um, the idea makes sense. but. So he wanted to have this um, national ad campaign, and I, I kept trying to back him down. I'd say, well, "Why don't you try it in the Michigan Game and Fish magazine first? You know, like try it in Pennsylvania because if it doesn't work there, it's not going to work. You know, you don't need to buy a full page in Outdoor Life. You know, so I was just trying to like back him off all the time. But he was determined that that was going to revolutionize the sport, and you know, it does make some sense to be honest with you, but. I, it's, it's only works and only makes sense in places where uh, the deer are looking into the trees already, or if you're skylining a tree, you know, 
I don't need one here in Iowa because most of the deer that I hunt don't look up. You know, if they do look up, if you're not moving, they don't know what you are, you know, but in PA, you know, maybe it makes more sense because, you know, there the deer are probably walking around looking up. And if they see a person, they're going to freak out where, you know, it's, it's uh, anyway, my point was, I can't remember the guy's name, but yeah, I remember that product. Well, uh, I remember, do you remember Ro- Roger Rothar? Um, uh, the name? Was, yeah, I do. under a lot, but, uh. Roger was my neighbor for a long time before he passed away down in Southern Iowa. I remember reading his stuff and he would leave uh, like, you know, used or smelly or whatever worn t-shirts in his tree stands. Um, He'd hang them up there or he'd put them in different spots where he wanted the deer to get used to human scent because he figured that, you know, if it's non-threatening and they're used to it, that, you know, if he popped in there, they're not going to, you know, be nervous about, you know, his scent showing up. And, you know, I don't know if that works or not. That um, sure might. But here's another one that to ponder. Um, one of my friends is a fellow named Larry Zock. He's a wildlife artist. Mm-hmm. Larry had this idea that if you stood, <laughs> if you stood in the middle of a clover field with the bow sticking out in front of you for long enough, the deer would accept you and would be feeding. You know, within 15, 20 feet of you um, eventually because they would see you as non-threatening. They would get used to you being there. He said, no, all you got to do that is just draw the bow back and shoot. And <laughs> who's going to volunteer to be the guy who has to yeah. figure out how long you have to stand it there? Be <laughs> it'd be days. I bet you it'd be weeks. It would but, work a lot better with a crossbow too. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that, that he said that we should do it. He just said that if you would do it, if you could do it, you know, eventually they would, they would come right around you because they saw you as non-threatening. Um, so, I mean, half the time the deer should feel like I'm non-threatening anyway, even when I'm trying to kill them. But the, uh, that would definitely be one to, to, uh, you can try that this fall. Oh, uh, why don't you do one of those, like those, those marathon things, you know, where you raise money. You know, by for every hour, <laughs> for yeah. every hour, I said, can I use a pole or something to hold yeah. my bow arm out? Yeah, you can rest your arm. Okay, I'll, I'll pledge. I'll pledge a dollar an hour. I'll, I'll get the pledging started. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, how good would that be? I just have to go to some food plot somewhere and yeah. stand stand out in the middle. Yes. In, until I can shoot a deer. I can't yeah. come. You can't come in until you shoot a deer. That's right. Either you die or the deer dies. One of you, two, two of you enter, one of you leaves. See, now that's better than zip lines. <laughs> we owe Larry Zock that, that tip. Um, all right. So this has been a great show, by the way. I mean, I hope, I hope people were looking for a laugh and a little bit of entertainment when they, when but, they, but, but we're taking things to the extreme that actually make sense, though, because, you know, talking about what's non-threatening, <clears throat> you know, one deer accepts something, you can get away with a lot. You know, like I used to park right in, in a farmer's driveway and I could bang on the doors. I could do anything I wanted to and then walk a couple hundred yards across the road and be in a tree and the deer were none the wiser. But if I would have just parked on a gravel road or parked anyplace else, you know, so when you're matching human activity that they've already accepted is non-threatening, I mean, you can get away with murder. But anyway, we're just taking that to the to the uh, you know insane extreme. 
Well, tell me this. You, you mentioned like with your video series, which is, by the way, it's a very cleverly named bow hunting whitetails, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like you literally have almost a corner on the market of probably one of the most used search terms on YouTube, right? If you just you, you think I get a million views per episode, but I don't. That's <laughs> crazy. But um, you, you you mentioned like we can't just hunt on managed land and all. So I got to ask you, I mean, what do you have on plan for this fall? And are you guys actually do you do some trips and things like that in addition to hunting just there at home? We might do a little bit. I think uh, one of our sponsors is Ev Terrell. He used to be at uh, Cabela's. He's got a company called Code of Silence. It's apparel. Um, Ev lives in Nebraska, and he's right on the Platte River. So I think my daughter and I, Jordan and I, are going to go out there. Uh, my One of my camera guys that works for me is a guy named Ethan Stubbs, and Ethan's from that same area. And they might just make kind of a you know a fun social trip out of that one. Um, I've got a good friend who's got an outfitting business up in Alberta, but he spends most of the early fall in uh, uh, British Columbia. He runs a sheep camp. And I'd love to go up there and hunt with Ron, you know, early, you know, early September. But if he's not going to be there, if he's going to be in sheep camp, I can't do that. But that'd be another one that'd be a lot of fun, you know, just to go to someplace early. Because I don't want to spend the prime days anyplace else other than, you know, at, at our place. Um, but I think we're going to kick around more here. You know, I've got a little bit of permission. You know, I've got two interns this year and they don't really have a lot of places to hunt. But fortunately, there's tons of public land around here, you know, both on the Iowa side and really on the Minnesota and the Wisconsin side. We're right in the corner, you know, so they can find all kinds of, of public hunting. So you know, we'll bring that into the episodes. And uh, Ethan, you know, he'll be hunting this year and he's got a lot of uh, like permission type properties, little you know, spots he can get here and there, nothing, you know, heavily managed. And Who's that? That's your son? No, Ethan's the camera guy, Ethan Stubbs. Oh, okay. So anyway, uh what's what's your what's your son up to these days? He's in college studying. Um he's on his fifth year. He's uh real smart. He's getting a a double major in aerospace engineering and computer science. Um, so he's, uh, yeah, he's, he doesn't have a lot of time because he takes summer classes too. He's, he's going to get two majors in five years. He wants to design broadheads, I guess, huh? aerospace yeah. engineering. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not his plan. <laughs> <laughs> he probably wants a job that pays. Oh my gosh. Uh, no, that's he, awesome. Whatever he decides to do, he'll do well. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I'd love to see more of him. But he's uh, you know, he's he's stretched pretty thin with all the classes that he takes and stuff. But uh, so yeah. Anyway, getting back to that, we're going to try to spread ourselves over a lot of different types of land. And the story on this property is just going to be you know the the evolution of the farm itself. Whereas in southern Iowa, we always picked the deer, maybe two deer, and, and said these these are the bucks that we're after. You know, come on and follow, and you know we'll take you along on the story. Um, we may, may, you know, we'll do some of that here too, but a lot of it's just going to be the evolution of, you know, turning a cattle farm into a, a hunting farm and, you know, some of the challenges and opportunities that, you know, are part of that. Well, and the nice thing about that is it's not going to be an overnight job. So 
you can get many, many seasons. You can get the rest of your lifetime yeah. out, out of trying to get that dialed into just exactly how you want it. Yeah. And and speaking of evolution, and I think we need to end on this. I'm going to take three ideas that we discussed and evolve them into one crazy kooky idea. You talked about the guy who liked to hang his smelly T-shirts in his stands. And you talked about Larry's idea for standing in the middle of the food plot. And we talked about that guy who had those dummies that went in your tree stands, the hunting buddy. Here's what you need to do, Bill. Instead of me doing that, because just for a dollar an hour, I mean, it's got to be at least a dollar fifty, or I can't see it being worth my while. But get a hunting buddy and put one of the smelly T-shirts on it, <laughs> and then what was the third thing? <laughs> put him out in the food plot. Put him out in the food plot. A hunting buddy with a smelly T-shirt holding up a bow, and okay. use. Use the hunting buddy to condition the deer. And then all you have to do is slide in and take the place of the hunting buddy. And you can do the same thing Larry thought you could do without all the waiting. No, you're right. And and you should put a trail camera on it. I've done some of this testing to see how long it takes. Like when you put a ground blind out, I'll put a camera in the field scan mode. You know, it takes a picture like every minute or whatever. Yeah. Remember, remember speaking of things that came and went, remember the plot watcher? Yep. Yep. Those were those were pretty good. Yeah, and, and a lot of the cameras have that functionality now. I think that's why it went away, you know, because they all have that time lapse. The time lapse, yeah. Yep. But anyway, if you throw a camera up and do that, you can tell when the deer finally accept the ground blind, you know, by setting the camera where it can see the blind and, and you know, the plot. Well, in my experience, all the deer, for the most part, have accepted it by 10 days. So if you're standing out there, like we're trying to figure out, you know, how much money you could make. So what's 10, that'd be 240 hours at a dollar, 240 bucks you'd have got from me. You know, if you, if you'd have done it, you know, standing out there for 10 days. I can make that in like one normal day, umpiring a nice softball tournament. (laughs) (laughs) But it wouldn't be nearly as much fun as standing there. Oh yeah. It's a lot more fun. I enjoy umpiring the softball. (laughs) So no, I think there's, but, but there is an article in this about the extremes of, of conditioning deer. You know, like there's got to be something in here because, again, you think it's creative and silly, but it's not. It's not a gimmick. This is the fundamentals. You know, they, if the deer don't know that they're being hunted, you know, you can kill them. And once they accept something, I mean, if you parked a car uh, in a food plot, within a few days, they'd be all around that thing. Maybe one day. Oh, Yeah. Have varying, you know, time frames of, of how long it takes them to accept stuff. Well, hey, you know, like it, you let let people call you crazy all you want. If you show up with a two hundred inch deer, they'll stop calling you crazy really quick. You know, <laughs> but you better show up with that two hundred inch deer, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's like going in for lunch on outfitted hunts. I always go in for lunch, and there's always guys in camp who are like. I'm not going in. I'm staying out here all day. And I always tell them, that's good. I'm going in for tacos. You make me regret it. Yeah. 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 That's it. And if they don't kill a buck, then I just spend the rest of the afternoon telling them how good the tacos were. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, all by texting, of course, we're texting one another in our tree stands. Nobody talks anymore. No, no. That's so old school. Hey, this is actually, you know, what's funny, Bill? Really? podcasting is the return of talking because 
podcasting is like sitting around the campfire or standing next to the tractor out in the field and shooting the bull. Who would have ever thought, honestly, that podcasting would have become so popular? Because all podcasts really are, are just conversations. I know it's crazy to me and it makes me mad because, you know, I spent so much time and money and effort, you know, on the video production business and creating, you know, like a staff of all these people. I could have just sat in front of the voice recorder and talked. You know, call people like you and just laugh and stuff like we're doing. And, and probably done just as well. I know. I'm getting paid again next week. It's hard to believe. I'm not getting paid. How come I'm not getting paid? Oh, get man. Paid well, I'll, maybe a little something extra for your next column if you can remember what it's called. Uh, it's Peterson's Boy <laughs> Magazine. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> Bill does not like to give me much satisfaction, never has, but we put up with him for 15 years and some predecessors before that. So yeah, he's got, I wrote my first, I think I wrote my first article for the magazine in 91. The year I graduated high school. Yeah. Yeah. That's, how that's I awesome. How I celebrated your graduation was writing an article. <laughs> well, man, I appreciate it. You know, it's funny because when I graduated high school, I wasn't a hunter. I didn't even get into hunting until right after college. So it was 90. Well, I graduated in 95. I think it was, I don't think I hunted until 97, Bill. Wow. I, think I, was, I think it was like 21 when I killed my first deer. Yeah. So yeah, so that's, that's a whole, that's a whole nother episode. But uh, anyway, it's brought me to great places like knowing you and doing this incredible podcast. <laughs> Everyone who's listening, if you've made it this far, yeah. I do think you deserve a medal. You ought to yeah. like give us give us a five star Google review or something for the Bowhunting podcast. Bill, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch I'm gonna watch all your episodes and and make sure and see whatever you're up to and take all the sage advice that you'll have and apply it to my own hunting this year. Well, I appreciate it. I'll, I'll get one view, at least one view per episode. Guaranteed. Yeah, I can get some sponsors wrapped around that. You got it. All right. Well, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for making time for me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for downloading the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting Magazine on your local newsstand or connect with us online at bowhuntingmag.com.